This is the At 530 on Main podcast. I'm Sean Collins. And I'm Mike Davis. And we're here to discuss the convergence of digital and physical experiences in today's world. With Extend Group as an expert in designing online experiences and VPS Architecture, an expert on creating physical experiences, you will hear unique discussions on technology, theory, and more that merges our separate areas of expertise into one podcast experience. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy today's At 530 on Main podcast episode. We are at 530 on Main here in Evansville, Indiana, 530 Main Street, corner of Main, and I guess that right there would be 6th Street, right? 6th Street, right across from Ford Center here, uh, Evansville, Indiana, just finished up uh, the Elite Eight, right? D2, fourth year in a row, I think, Uh Northeast Missouri State. Northeast right? Missouri State. I know they're green juggernauts. and white. Yeah, juggernauts. <laughs> they have it wrapped up. They have a they have a program going on, going into the final four. The last time that we were in the podcast studio, the tournament had just got started. So that's how quickly uh, time goes here. Today, Mike and I are fortunate enough to have Zach Hieronymus in the podcast studio with us, the Extension Studio on App 530 on Main, brought to you by VPS Architecture and Extend Group. Zach is the Executive Director of Aurora. Many other things that I would love for him to be able to talk to us about. Uh, hopefully today you'll get to know him a little bit uh, more. He's very active in our community, and we are uh, lucky to have him here in Evansville, Indiana. Zach, welcome to App 530 on Main. Thank you. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the Zach Hieronymus journey. Uh, you know, I guess I'm not a native uh, Evansvillian. Um, I, you know, grew up in the military, so I'm an Army brat. Spent a, a lot of my time, you know, uh, most more than half of my formidable years growing up, uh, bouncing around from place to place. So I was born in Japan. I lived in uh, South Carolina. I lived in Germany, lived in Georgia, uh, lived in Kentucky. Uh, my father retired after about 25 years in the Army, and we ended up in Madisonville, Kentucky, of all places. So graduated high school there, and uh, you know, I went to college, met my wife. Uh, we traveled around, lived in different places. You know, We've lived in Colorado. We've lived in East Tennessee. Um, lived in a few places in Kentucky. My, my wife, she's a small town Kentucky girl uh, from a little place called Caneyville, about 500 people. Um, okay. But when we were in East Tennessee, um, her her father, my father-in-law, came down with cancer, was in Owensboro in the hospital, and uh, we just happened to have some friends in Henderson that let us stay in their basement for two, two almost three months. Okay. Uh, uh, when my father-in-law passed away, um, my wife had gotten a job here in Evansville, I was pretty familiar with Evansville being from Madisonville. This is kind of where we came to shop and eat and watch movies because uh, our movie in Madisonville only had G-rated movies, <laughs> if you can believe that, in the in the you know mid to late nineties. Uh, and uh, so you know it just um, it was just kind of a natural stay for for us. We had friends across the river. Um, I had familiarity with the place. Uh, my wife kind of did, you know, being from about an hour and a half away and, um, you know, ended up transferring to USI, finishing up my undergrad, uh, started getting involved politically uh, as well as um, kind of 
you know, community-wise, I guess you could say, I, I, I uh, did the field operations for the school referendum campaign in 2008 to, to get all the STEM, you know, programming, all the upgrades, technology upgrades, and obviously the new buildings, right? Yeah. You know, the new school. Um, kind of parlayed that into working in the county treasurer's office for four years under Rick Davis uh, and, you know, been involved, you know, politically and uh in community service of one way, shape, or form, pretty much ever since I've been here. So, I'm in my going on my ninth year, I guess you could say, of nonprofit work. Uh, where you know I worked at United Way, I worked at Tri-State Food Bank. Uh, now I'm the executive director of Aurora Homeless Services Agency here in our community. Yeah, tell us uh, a little bit about Aurora and the individuals in the community that you serve there. Yeah. Uh, so Aurora, we act as the lead homeless services agency in Region 12. And Region 12 is um, part of the continuum of care. It's the balance of state. Basically, HUD funding comes through the state and comes through the city. Uh, state subdivides us out. We uh, have access to programs that no other uh, organization in the 10-county southwestern region uh, has access to. And what those programs do are uh, provide housing and utility assistance to get folks you know, those individuals, those seniors, those families, those children that are experiencing homelessness stabilized, um, you know, through the housing first model. Uh, and then our team of social workers, uh, you know, work to case manage them. Uh, and what they do is they case manage them on a individual or, you know, household basis. Uh, we assess them. Uh, we figure out what their needs are. Uh, and then we work to convene, you know, uh, services, uh, outside of our organization that we don't provide, right? Whether it's mental health, whether it's job skill up training, whether it's educational needs, financial literacy, um, you know, substance abuse, anything up and down, you know, the boulevard that that individual, that family might need. Yeah. Recently, I know uh, may have been a few months back here and it was uh, right before the holidays, right? You had a unique experience. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, right before Thanksgiving, uh, when the weather turned really nice and cold, um, you know, uh, COVID kind of made us really take a step back in a lot of respects. Right. One of them was, you know, evaluating our, our special events and, you know, that additional revenue that we need to pull in to, to help make sure that we, uh, keep a trained qualified staff, uh, on hand. And, so we looked at uh, our gingerbread competition, which had been around for about 16 or 17 years going, uh, and it was a lot of work. It's been, you know, nine and a half, ten months of work for a little bit of a return. Um, yeah. Uh, it was a struggle getting participants, uh, you know, the past few years, and so it kind of ran its course. So we kind of looked at what we were doing, said, you know, what can we think of that, you know, can do a multitude of things. One raise awareness for Aurora and most importantly, the people that we serve, right? Uh, two is, you know, obviously as a nonprofit, we need funds, right? Something that can, you know, be impactful and, and raise a, a decent amount of funds. And then the other shot of it was, you know, from a selfish perspective was something that was not ex extensive and more outside of the box uh, than a normal special event would be, right? Right. No, no dinners, no nothing like that. So we came up with 48 Hours in the Life. It's the Homeless Experience Project. And, you know, it was a uh, raving success uh, on all of those uh, accounts, right? You know, it was helped us raise awareness, um, helped us raise a tremendous amount of 
money. Uh, and then the other side of it was, it was really you know fairly easy to carry out. Our team at Aurora did a great job of making an immersive experience that didn't really exploit the people that we serve, uh, but really enlightened the 12 participants, myself included, um, uh, throughout that 48-hour journey. You know, we were in the shelters, we were in the soup kitchens, we were seeking services that we would navigate folks to anyhow, right? Mm -hmm. um, they got to see, you know, the good side of things, they got to see the bad side of things, they got to see the indifferent side of things. Uh, and they, most importantly, they got a really good understanding of the challenges that they, you know, that those individuals, those families experiencing homelessness face on a day-to-day -day basis, but they realized the things that, you know, we take for granted, right? You know, days in the homeless experience drag on for what seems like an infinite amount of time, right? Uh, whereas our days fly by, yeah. you know, at the drop of a head or a snap of a finger, right? We have our days planned out, right? And, and because we're, you know, working in this world, right, you know, the day-to-day the -day normal world, uh, those schedules coincide with everybody else's schedules for the most part, right, you know, and if not, we can coincide them fairly easily, yeah. right? But when you're experiencing homelessness, you may arrive to an uh, appointment an hour, hour and a half early because you didn't have anything else to do, right? Uh, or you might be on the other side of town and not have the means to get there and end up having to decide, okay, do I need to go get food or do I need to try and get there and most likely miss an appointment, right? right. Um, you know, uh, just those things, you know, where idle, you know, idle time can sometimes lead you into trouble as well too, right? But the biggest thing that everybody took away from it, myself included, um, and, I, and I'll say personally that experience 48 hours, even working in this field, you know, it was emotionally and physically exhausting. Uh, I came out of it with a fresh perspective, uh, and, you know, on our work and most importantly, the folks that we serve uh, and, a, and a renewed sense of mission. However, you know, what we all experienced, the, the one thing that we all experienced was uh, how gracious and willing people experiencing homelessness were uh, in helping you navigate everything, right? You know, pointing you in the direction of services. A lot of the times they were pointing us to Aurora, which was, I mean, just very humbling. Uh, and then the other side of it was, is those folks that aren't experiencing homelessness, how they just seem to not acknowledge you, right? That they just look through you, they look around you, uh, they do everything not to do the simple things that us as humans uh, tend to do on a daily basis, you know, connect eyes, you know, anything, just a common gesture. Uh, you just didn't get it. I mean, it was so apparent. We had, <clears throat> we had uh, two participants, one who almost brushed shoulders with their cousin over near the civic center. Yeah. And their cousin did not recognize them. And another one whose brother and wife drove by them in vehicles, knew that they were participating uh, in this particular and still did not recognize them. 
and I and I don't know if it's a it's a bad human condition that we have, mm-hmm. um, but you know if you look a certain way, <clears throat> if you got a backpack or you're pushing a cart or you know heaven forbid being a, a wheelchair or something to that nature that we just we don't maybe we're not comfortable with it or maybe you know it's the unknown that that kind of keeps us away. But you know what I what we believe at Aurora is that you know. It doesn't matter how you came about experiencing homelessness. You have value, uh, and we're there to you know help you navigate and rebuild your life. Yeah. So your each one of your twelve participants, they had a kind of a role, right? That you were assigned of a certain scenario and in which they were in that experience. Yep. They had a backstory. They had a um, a charted out you know, a uh, course for each day, right? You know, uh, we started at noon on, on that Thursday uh, before Thanksgiving. We ended at noon on that Saturday. We're going to be doing it again this year. Uh, we're going to, you know, beef up the experience, uh, make sure that, you know, we immerse them in more agencies that help Aurora, uh, you know, be successful as what it, at what we are. Because, uh, you know, at Aurora, we're we're great at housing plans. We're great at income plans. We're great at restorative life plans. Yeah. That last one we can't do by ourselves, right? We we have to have partners that provide the professional services that Aurora just does not, right? Uh, and um, you know, we want to make sure not only that we're lifting up the community that we serve, one that is you know of uh, of the you know top three or four highest per capita homelessness rates in the state of Indiana, right? That's number one, right? We want to make everybody aware. We've got a significant population experiencing homelessness. The other side of it is, is we want to lift up all of our partners that, you know, make us in our work see success because we see a lot of success, but we still see failure. Uh, And, you know, our partnerships and the network that's here in the community play a vital role in in shaping that success. That's probably something that's very, I don't know if it's unique to Evansville, but it seems like that's something in Evansville, especially around mental health, that all the different agencies are coming together to say, you know, let's not duplicate, let's support each other. How do we make this network, you know, work mm-hmm. and, and and function? Because I always feel like a lot of times, at least for me, when I got into serving on boards or and it was always like, we're doing this. Well, here's four others doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Why are we doing this? <laughs> you know, because we're just bleeding each other dry right. with a little bit of money when we could all do something different or combine forces and have a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. That's largely in part the reason why m- most folks have a misunderstanding of Aurora. A lot of folks think we're a shelter. A lot of folks think we're a, a, a you know soup kitchen. A lot of folks think we provide the actual physical buildings for, for the housing. And we don't, right. We have, you know, the echoes and the housing authorities and, you know, the Memorial CDCs and other organizations that provide that on top of the private, you know, property owners and managers in our community that partner with us, uh, and, and allow us to, you know, house our folks there. Um, uh, we just, we don't, we don't want to get into the same spheres as, as what other folks are because we're niche uh, and our niche is very impactful. Uh, and, and, you know, we know that 
it's important to have us, you know, serve as that navigator, serve as that case manager, serve as that convener of wraparound, uh, you know, services that'll rebuild their lives. So how is that experience that you talked about earlier on about being that military brat going from community to community? How has that shaped you long term to be, you know, that advocate? Has it played a part in it? Oh, I mean, without a doubt. I, you know, growing up in the military was one of the most difficult things to do as a child. Uh, you know, and I, I, I know this for, <laughs> I know this for two reasons. One, it was always hard to pick up every, you know, three, four years, uh, move into a new community, lose your friends, have to make new friends. Um, uh, you know, I, but looking back, it helped me grow uh, as an individual on a multitude of reasons. One, the life experiences that I had uh, in each community all varied. Um, Believe it or not, the military is a very diverse uh, institution. uh, And so I was uh, exposed to a lot of different cultures, uh, not only from a, you know, geographical, you know, actually living there in a sense, but, you know, whether it was the, you know, South Asian or Asian or, um, you know, uh, Latino or whatever, you know, background uh, we were stationed around, we often lived in, you know, public housing, so to speak. It was government, military housing, right? Uh, So we got to uh, be around a lot of different folks, but the capacity for Going through that experience uh, has has given me the capacity uh, to, you know, really go into any situation and feel comfortable uh, around a multitude of people. Um, uh, it's served me really well moving into Evansville. Uh, I feel like I, I know a lot of folks. Uh, yeah. I feel like, uh, obviously, it helped me uh, get elected to city council. Um, but it also helps shape my perspective on anything I'm I'm doing, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, policies and procedures at Aurora or relationship building at Aurora or, you know, if we're talking about city council and the community, you know, policy and and things that we can be driving towards uh, as as a community that, you know, my children are growing up in. I want to see, you know, thrive and flourish. Uh, And if I can be any part in that, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. So as you moved around, what's your favorite place? Or space that you, well, you visited? Yeah, I mean, so I, I spent most of my element, elementary school in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I can tell you, you know, living in Europe um, uh, in the, you know, late 80s, uh, <laughs> um, you know, early 90s and all that was was a interesting time, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we were there when the wall was uh, still up. Uh, you know, my sister, um, we lived in Darmstadt, Germany, in, in West Germany. My sister commuted uh, commuted from Darmstadt to Frankfurt uh, via train 40 miles one way to go to high school, mm-hmm. you know, back and forth. Um, uh, we got to see a lot of things that a lot of folks that I, you know, went to high school with only have at that time and most likely still have only seen in textbooks, right? Whether it's, you know, Mm -hmm. castles in Europe or, you know, the channels in the Netherlands or, you know, train rides through the countryside of France, uh, you know, or riding in a ferry over to, um, you know, Great Britain and and doing the the travels through there. I mean, it it was amazing uh, experience as as a child and 
Um, you know, it, you you see America and some of the development that we do here in the states, and uh, and then I revert back to you know these long-standing buildings and uh, the way that they develop their communities. Uh, they were developed before the thought of non-public transportation uh, outside of a horse and buggy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it was centralized planning, right? Right, right. You're plan you plan the community. We we did that here. You see a lot of it with the central courthouse and then how it sprawls out from there. And then you go into urban sprawl and that's a whole nother issue all based on the car. Right, right. For <laughs> sure. For sure. But yeah, I live when I stayed over in Europe, that was the one thing coming back was the most aggravating thing is like now you drive if i have to drive to india it's like how much could i get done if this was a train ride instead right. of <laughs> driving in a car and not being able to do anything well and i've never, never even really thought of it in that perspective yeah. but um you know it's it's funny because uh, uh in 2019 when i was running for city council we had a uh trip planned to take a train up to chicago yeah. and take my son up there yeah. um my daughter was born in the end of 2018, and and so this was going to be like her big trip just with Jackson, you know, like little baby's going to go stay with grandma. Grandma was looking forward to you know three or four days of taking care of the baby, and something happened and it got canceled, and then so we rescheduled it for 2020, and then everybody knows what happened in 2020, so that yeah. got canceled, um, and so I'm really looking forward to that trip. Namely, because you get to see things that you wouldn't otherwise from an interstate, right? Um, that, um, yeah, that's one of the you know one of the things of living in Germany for sure was you could be a hop and a skip from you know any country in Europe within a half a day, uh, if not just a slightly longer uh, via train, and okay. and you know you can eat. And mm -hmm. if I was an adult, I probably would have had a few beverages as yeah. well right take a nap <laughs> yeah take you a nap sleep and you're just like hey we're there all right yeah, yeah. so that was you know I, I i very much enjoyed that uh looking back um uh it you know makes me appreciate how i grew up uh and i look forward to to returning sometime uh when i can afford it really yeah. <laughs> so. well now yeah back Back then, when I was there, they didn't even have the euro yet. So it was, True. it was a lot. Yeah, the yeah. exchange rate was, I think, only England was higher by two to one mm -hmm. to the dollar, and everything else was a lot less. I remember we went to, which is now in the news, Slovakia. You know, we took a, went there for a weekend. Mm. Uh, Slovenia, like right there by Ukraine, actually, mm -hmm. pretty close. Man, I think it was like thirty-two to one exchange rate. It was oh wow. Like, are just like what the you know you're just having, thought you were rich and living like kings right right <laughs> that's i have you all ever seen this is kind of off topic but have you ever seen that movie euro trip yeah yeah when when uh they he throws him a, a nickel and uh to the bellhop at the hotel and he he grabs it and he smacks his boss he says i'll open a new hotel <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what it felt like sometimes you're like man this is insane what in the world yeah very cheap back then <laughs> we were going to ireland for our honeymoon we're like ah, oh, we'll go somewhere that you know unique we'll go to ireland we ended up going to mexico but now i'm like 
why didn't, you know, yeah. back then, you know, 18 plus years ago, so much more affordable than what it would be today. It was like that opportunity of, well, sunshine and, you know, mm-hmm. resort or go over and it was kind of the off season, if you will. And it was now let's, let's just go have, you know, the resort thing. And Wilson, mm-hmm. I always talk about that as, you know, should have went over to Ireland. That's where my uh, father's uh, whole family's from. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that was a missed opportunity. I wish I could have experienced that. Uh, experience would yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you talked about the different variations of each one of the. How do you know what is the the homeless experience here in, in Evansville like? I mean, you talked about where the, one of the highest uh, per capita. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to tell the listeners how how can that happen? Just give us the, give us a few uh, examples. Yeah, well. I mean, it obviously the experience varies by person, right? Uh, we we like to say no matter you know, there's a, a myriad of reasons why you'll experience mm-hmm. homelessness, and there's a myriad of pathways out of it, right? Um, you know, it runs the gambit of what most people know, mental health, substance abuse, uh, to, you know, the tragic stories that you hear of, you know, widowed, into, you know, widow or widower, right, yeah. uh, who's, um, you know, significant other passes away and medical debt, you know, kind of gets them spiraling out of control. Uh, some of it is, you know, in the state of Indiana, we, we, uh, we don't do well by people who rent homes, Right, rent uh, apartments. Um, you know, we see a lot of folks that um, you know have utility shutoffs that cause them to be evicted, and then um, evictions on their records. You know, play a significant barrier in them getting housed again. We we have we struggle with that all the time. Fortunately, we have um, you know private property owners that you know partner with us and and you know overlook that because uh, mm-hmm. they know that those tenants are coming alongside with some case management and assistance and stabilization. Um, but, you know, we've even seen uh, the crazy ones like a senior being catfished out of all their money, right? Uh, so it, it, it runs the full gambit. What I, what I will say about the homeless experience in, in our community is um, it, it's tough. Right. It's tough uh, on a multitude of levels. Uh, if you didn't have mental health issues going into it, oftentimes you'll come out of it with it. Uh, there's a lot of stress, a lot of trauma that comes alongside it. Uh, and when we think about our, our community, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of folks think that our cost of living in Evansville and Vandenberg County uh, or southwestern Indiana is fairly reasonable. And I think, you know, for the most part, for us in this room, we would probably agree with that. When you look at that, you know, the numbers that are, you know, touted, you know, average, you know, house value, you know, average household, you know, income, uh, it's a little mistelling when you look at it in the aggregate, right? Uh, the city of Evansville alone has almost 50% people that are living paycheck to paycheck on down into poverty. You know, poverty in our in our city, in this community, make up 27% of people that live here, right? And poverty is young families, you know, 
moderately aged mm -hmm. individuals and families and seniors that are on fixed income. And sometimes those seniors are taking care of their kids or maybe their grandkids. Uh, and and so, you know, we've, we've got a culmination of a lot of things here in, in you know, southwestern Indiana. We've got a higher rate of uh, mental health. We have a higher rate of substance abuse. We have a, a you know, one of the lowest uh, median household incomes in the state of Indiana for the city of Evansville, uh, which is where the vast majority of the homeless population in southwestern Indiana resides. Um, and, you know, when you factor in all those things, one thing spiraling out of control can lead you into the homeless experience. And, and um, you know, most often, obviously, those folks that we're seeing are people that have been evicted out of, you know, a rental uh, living situation, not necessarily somebody losing their homes that they own. But we do see that as well, too. So, so how, I was going to say, how do you connect? So I know you guys have offices. Right. And I think that's yeah, probably where you do most of your work. But how do you connect with those people and how do people connect with you physically mm -hmm. to in order to get those services or to start the process? You know, probably someone says, hey, they're over here. But you were just talking about how does someone get there mm -hmm. when maybe they're downtown and, you know, UCS is down the street and shelter and got a couple others, um, I know, up the up the street that help with those services? Do they direct you there? How, how's, how's that connection work? All of it. <laughs> All of it. Um, uh, you would be surprised at how uh, quickly word of mouth uh, spreads through, you know, the population experiencing homelessness. Um, obviously, there's several intake spots uh, for people experiencing homelessness. One of those uh, specifically are our shelters, right? We've got five shelters here in the community. We've got UCS Men's. We've got more than five shelters. Uh, UCS Men's, we've got Roots House, which is a women's shelter affiliated with UCS. We've got Evansville Rescue Mission. We have House of Bread and Peace. Uh, we have Albion. We have uh, YWCA. Uh, we have Ozanam, our only family shelter. Um, so those are all good uh, uh, entry points for individuals experiencing homelessness for a variety of reasons. Our bread and butter program and what we're most known for at Aurora is our outreach team. Uh, our outreach team consists of uh, five outreach case managers and one uh, crisis intervention uh, uh, case manager. Uh, and effectively, they are out on the streets. You know, they're, they're going with the EPD and the homeless liaison uh, officer uh, uh, to go on runs for call-ins, right? Uh, mm -hmm. We're going into the shelters uh, on a you know daily uh, basis, right? We are um, you know working to assess and and get them into what's called the coordinated entry system, which is what we carry out, which is what our grant funders on the federal level require, mm -hmm. uh, either directly from the uh, HUD or indirectly through the state of Indiana and the city of Evansville. And coordinated entry <clears throat> is what effectively, once that individual or family is assessed, um, it, it basically scores them. It gives them what's called a vulnerability score. Uh, and that's how we determine which programs we have internally uh, best suits their needs and how we can uh, get them into it, right? So um, we do prioritization uh, as far as getting folks in uh, by that vulnerability score. Uh, it's not just a list that you get on it and then when it's your term, it is. Um, our funders require us to 
uh, focus on the most vulnerable. Uh, and so we, you know, we have different programs that focus on those. We have different programs that are intermediate that focus on, you know, other needs, right? So our rapid rehousing is specifically focused on our shelter population, largely in part because 45 day stay in emergency shelter is all you can do. Um, we have, uh, that's an intermediate program, could, could be served up to two years for that individual or family. Uh, we've got what's called a housing first uh, program, which focuses on uh, individuals that have mental health and substance abuse, but don't need permanent supportive housing like our Beacon program does, which is more profound mental health, profound uh, disabilities of all sorts. Um, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much how it works. So uh, we're still working to build out a more effective and efficient coordinated entry system. Uh, and that's something that uh, has been a high priority of, of ours, uh, most especially since I've come on board. How long does that take? Because you did the, you know, day in the life and you have that certain amount of time, but I'm sure it takes much longer than that to get somebody that enters the system and then, oh, day one to day whatever that you're you're here probably takes a lot longer than 48 hours. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, and it varies, right? Some of them can be quick. Um, you know, I, I hate this term, but, you know, because I, I hear it too much uh, outside of the, the social services sector. Uh, but, you know, sometimes we do have quick wins, right, where, you know, the stars align. There's a unit available there. You know, this person scores or, or family scores appropriately, right, mm -hmm. uh, and and moves them into the, you know, appropriate place uh, and program. Uh, and then there's some that, you know, could be a year, right? Mm -hmm. Could be more, right? It depends on two things. One, obviously, what their score is as far as prior to it prioritization <laughs> yeah. uh, or uh, the other factor is is what they want to do we we don't tell anybody you have to do it this way this is the only way that you can do it we say okay here's your options yeah what do you want to do right so somebody who is chronically homeless that may be out on the street or in shelter that is on a fixed income maybe it, I, i'll say case in point we had a, a, a gentleman that was staying in an encampment out on Allen's Lane, right? It was a tremendous encampment. They'd been out there for, but the first time I met them was almost three years, maybe a little over three years. They had tents, they had generators, they had heat, they had TVs with a TV antenna. They had means to cook. Mm -hmm. And him and his cohort, who he lived in one tent and he lived in another tent, um, they were both on fixed income, right? The one in particular uh, uh, was a vet, right? So he had, you know, disability and, you know, some VA benefits that he was getting as well. Uh, and he never wanted to go into anything because it would eat up all of his money mm -hmm. uh, until, yeah. you know, until about March of last year. And after, you know, four, four and a half years of being out on the, on the street, uh, you know, our outreach team making the rounds, checking in on them, right? Yeah. You know, he, he talked with our, our team lead, Natasha, and was like, hey, Natasha, I'm ready. And she's like, oh, okay. Within yeah. six weeks, we were able to get him into 
a spot. Yeah, well, that was a quick turnaround, but all the stars aligned. And and to put this in perspective, he wanted to be in a place where all of his income wouldn't be eaten up, right? Uh, so it had to be a, a PSH or subsidized housing situation, right? Um, it just so happened that Echo uh, had an, a, a recent opening in their veterans, uh, Lucas Place 2, mm-hmm. you know, their veteran-focused veteran uh, yeah. PSH uh, building, and he got his, um, you know, health screenings and, and immunizations all from, you know, Echo Healthcare and, and the Vandenberg County Health Department. We got, you know, all of the paperwork and everything all in line for him, and ushered them right in. Now, that's a really quick turnaround and the stars align. Oftentimes, individuals like that, you know, it's a, it's a long list and it's a, it's a long wait because yeah. we have what's called a housing crunch crisis, you know, here in the community, whether it's subsidized, permanent supportive housing or affordable, we're, you know, we're steadily seeing that pool of available units for people experiencing homelessness shrink. Yeah, so that's a big factor. And well, and a lot probably changes, right? And I always go back to, you know, there was a documentary, Moreland Spurlock mm-hmm. did 30 Days, where he was mm-hmm. starting out fresh and I think he even got a job. And I just always remember that, oh, he got a job and you, you, you watch the first week or so. And the documentary, and you're thinking, oh, this is, you know, he's got a place, he's got a job, and then he gets hurt. Mm-hmm. And then it was like health issues, because it's not like us where, Sean's hand, he can still be productive. Once you're hurt and you're doing more labor intensive work, you're out, right? You can't do it. And that's when everything, all the wheels started coming off and you saw by the end of it, he made no progress, even though he made progress and they went back down because of an injury. So I can imagine while they're saying they're waiting, anything can happen to change that course. Well, and you, you think about, especially in our community as well, the one thing that Morgan and I, I did see that. I also saw the Super Size Me one as well. Too, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, uh, but anyways, he, uh, the one thing that was not really incorporated in that story that we see on our end uh, are, you know, the barriers that folks experiencing homelessness mm-hmm. have, right? Some of the ones that we talked to, or one of the ones we talked about is evictions, right? The other side of it is, is like bad debt, Right. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. if you're evicted from yeah. a place, it's often you often owe a landlord. You often owe a utility, uh, you know, whether that's, you know, water and sewer here in Evansville or, you know, Center Point, Right. Um, uh, or you might have some outstanding liens elsewhere because you don't have the means to keep up with a credit card payment or a car payment or a phone bill. You know, all of these things that are necessary. So. It, it's not just, get, I mean, we, we practice what's called the housing first model, and that is we stabilize you. doesn't matter where you're at. You could be full-throw mental health issues. You could be full-throw substance abuse. You could be anything, right? We're going to get you housed. We're going to stabilize you. We're going to start working through the plans. Yeah. Um, but when we look at our community, most folks that are experiencing homelessness are not finding jobs that are living wage jobs. And that is what also contributes to the lack of affordability 
uh, in our housing market and limits the pool is just another factor in limiting the pool of, of where we can house folks. Yeah, and a lot of people don't under, I think a lot of people don't understand, which I didn't when I got in uh, to learning more about what's going on in Evansville and some of that stuff is the amount of costs that people don't understand that, yeah, there might be tax dollars that go to this housing development that's going to lower the rent rates, but, and people just see that, right, as a tax, but they don't see, well, wait a minute, but if we don't have that, it's costing you more in Texas because it's going to be more strain on our services mm-hmm. and our service industry and the amount of costs it takes for the jails and for the the hospitals that take on and all these services that take on because we don't provide that. Right, right, without a doubt. So coming out of a, a really weird time, you know, we, we've heard a lot of the challenges, right? And I like to say it's an unprecedented time. An unprecedented time. <laughs> I've never said that Amen. word <laughs> yeah. any more than I have in the past two two years. So, <laughs> a lot of people have told us the you know challenges. What opportunities? I like to look at it on the other side, half full, half empty. Which you know, how did it make Aurora better? Oh, the pandemic. Oh yeah. gosh. Man, in a multitude of ways. Uh, one, you know, when I first came into this role as executive director in January 20th of 2020, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking seven weeks right. before lockdown. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd been around this organization uh, since 2014 uh, when I when I worked at United Way. Uh, we are we were a United Way partner. Now we're we're called what's a uh, legacy United Way partner because they're going through some shifts over there. But so I was very familiar with uh, Aurora. Uh, I spent many uh, um, campaign visits at, you know, our corporate partners and, uh, you know, both large and uh, small businesses. And alongside, you know, Luzeta Hayes, who is a a previous executive director, uh, Brian Kearney, who was a previous executive director, uh, Susan Steinkamp, who is still on our staff, uh, was our uh, director of programs. Uh, She's moved into that crisis, uh, you know, uh, intervention specialist or, you know, coordinator uh, position. So she works with all of our programs and most of our most difficult clients. Uh, And, and, when I wasn't with them and I was telling the United Way story, it was always about, you know, Aurora found this individual or that person or this family, uh, you know, in that shelter or on the street or whatever, and help them navigate and convene with United Way partners and non-United Way partners. And so I knew the work that we were doing was really good, right? I left United Way. When I left United Way, I reached out to Brian Kearney. I said, hey, can I... You know, I'd like to get involved. I'd like to be on a board. You know, I hate to say I had a favorite, but, you know, I talked about you guys and, and uh, you know, I really enjoy the work that you guys do. So he brought me on the board and things go about. Brian uh, resigned, left. We brought in another executive director. He retired. Um, and then I had a board member ask me if I'd consider it. And it was really hard to turn down. Right. Yeah. First thing I wanted to do was raise awareness and raise funds, right? Raise awareness because it helps our organization, but most importantly, it helps the people that we serve. Raise funds because we need to pay our people. Like We need to make sure we have a qualified, well-paid staff where they don't have to worry about 
you know, their day-to-day when they're dealing with and carrying the weight and the, the, and the burden of the people they're serving on their own shoulders, right? Uh, so that all got thrown out the window seven weeks into it. So it, it gave me an opportunity to kind of look internally. Uh, we did a lot of uh, restructuring. I, I spoke with the board about us investing in new positions. One of those was the assistant director of programs because we had a director of programs that was overseeing seven programs, right? You know, it's very difficult uh, when each program is unique, right? Uh, and there's so much involved in, you know, the grant renewal process, the reporting process and all that stuff. And it wasn't making for good supports for our, our you know, frontline folks. Um, so, you know, fortunately enough, you know, even with the pandemic going on, they said, let's do it. Right. Uh, I brought in one of the most, you know, well, uh, knowledgeable homeless service people uh, who used to work with us, but then was uh, the executive director of Ozanam. Uh, I didn't poach her from there. She had actually left and went to another organization. I poached her from there. <laughs> uh, and she's come in and done a, a tremendous job, you know, uh, really refining that reorganization, really building out strength uh, in our programs, and most importantly, building out supports uh, for you know, all of our folks that are, are making a difference in the lives of the people we serve. So yeah. that was, you know, that was the biggest thing. Um, and, you know, we continue to, to tweak and work on it and, you know, move us from what one of our board members said was from a mom and pop into a, you know, legitimate nonprofit organization. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coming out of, I was in North Carolina a few weeks back and Bronson, who's the CEO of Giant Worldwide, he he he, we he left us with a little keynote at the end of forty five minutes of. It was basically you know you have two sides of the coin you have income and you have impact, and how you empower you know some people see that you know I you, we're in a we're in a business model we have you know no matter what it's all about you know the profitability and how do you drive that revenue and all those things and then there's people who are driven by one hundred percent impact. And in the challenges that that can often lead because you want to do so much more with so much less. So if you would, and and I I did hear one of a one of the board members that I used to serve with said, just because we have a not for profit status doesn't mean <laughs> that that is our vision, right? How do organizations? Because we always hear, oh well, nonprofit organization just do more with less, do more with less. How do we shift that mindset a little bit into, you know what, these people are, are providing a tremendous asset and value to our community. They shouldn't have to live in a way that means that just because they're having all this impact personally, their income and their family has to suffer through the same things. Yeah, I, you know, that's a, that's a big, slow turn, to be honest <laughs> with you, Sean. Uh, I, I have... Uh, battled that, you know, ever since I uh, got into the nonprofit, you know, uh, world. I, you know, I finished my undergrad at USI, turned around, got my master's in public administration as a dual focus on uh, nonprofit and government, right? And so, you know, I learned that the nonprofit world is really turning into a professional, you know, model, right? And it resembles business 
in a lot of respects aside from we don't have shareholders. Our shareholders are our clients that we serve, right? Yes. You know, our shareholders are really our community that we are also serving, you know? Um, and, you know, you you see a lot of turnover and burnout that happens in the uh, nonprofit world because there is still that mentality that, oh, well, you're doing really good work. Um, you know, you, you should feel good about that and not worry about, you know, putting food on your own table yeah. or, or making your mortgage or, you know, taking your kids on a vacation, you know, for crying out loud, right? Um, I think it's, you know, we have to have honest conversations with our funders. We have to have honest conversations within the community, uh, you know, to your point, Sean, about the services that are being provided. Uh, you know, if Aurora wasn't here, you know, there probably would be another organization that is doing our work, but Aurora is the only one doing the work that we're doing explicitly, right? Um, and, you know, it's a valuable service that otherwise, uh, you know, Mike, to your, to your point earlier, those costs would be spread out, you know, whether it's in the healthcare sector or whether it's in the business sector or whether it's in property taxes or income taxes or whatever it might be yeah. to, to provide <clears throat> what needs to be provided. So, you know, I, you know, I see and what I was seeing was we were paying uh, folks, you know, not nearly what they are worth, especially when we require them to have a four year social work degree. Yeah. Uh, and everybody knows what the cost of college is <laughs> nowadays. Right. Um, and so we were losing people after, you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months, you know, 24 months to five and six thousand dollar pay increases at another organization, yeah. Yeah. you know, and um, and it's not just the income that they need, but we as a nonprofit also need income to invest in them, right? Yes. We need income to invest in them in their uh, profession, right? Uh, whether it's, you know, professional development, whether it's, um, you know, organizational structure development or things to that degree, you know, um, those are the things that a lot of folks don't understand um and i think you know what they what the norm is and and you know for good reason is is of all the income you bring in you know you want to be 35 percent or below uh, with respect to your ad administration right and so yeah. you know you see a lot of that cost from a financial standpoint go into programs um uh and you know but programs include our people right, right. and a lot of people don't understand you know they think that well, we just take money and we just throw money over there. But if we just did that, then we would just really be letting this, you know, cycle perpetuate itself. Right. Uh, and and instead, we ha we have to have the people there to you know hold their hands, to guide them, to navigate them. Uh, and that's you know that's part of us raising awareness on not only what we do, but you know as as the world we live in. Yeah, and that retention being so important, you know, coming out of school, it's always, you know, that would be a great place for you to get your, your, you know, get your start, right? Go to this nonprofit, you'll be able to see community impact, it, it, it touches you personally, but then I don't think we really see what the long-term cost of that nonprofit is when that turnover continuously, you know, number one, to the employee who's going through somewhat of that, you know, 
it might be a, a deficit in income or time off or vacate, whatever that is. And then all of a sudden they leave after, let's say, three years, four years. You've invested all that time to get systems processes and all that going. They, you know, they get a $2,500 raise plus, you know, an extra week of vacation. And now you're going all the way back to the beginning mm-hmm. and you're probably looking at another eight to 12 month turnaround to get that person's staff back up while you're typically – you know, we keep hearing the, you know, you know, our budgets have to be cut because mm-hmm. annual giving is down, annual giving is down. So, yeah, I, I do see a real need in, in the nonprofit area to continuously educate on what it really takes to, like, I always hear, well, what what's your operational cost versus what your programs are? And I'm like, how do you separate the people who are actually delivering the program mm-hmm. from the good that they're impacting the community. And it takes really good people to have a really good product. So how do we help our nonprofit organizations be able to keep those really good individuals internally? Well, and I, you know, you, you said something really poignant. In our world, unlike in the business world, and this is where we can really differentiate between, you know, the nonprofit sector and the business. Nonprofit people uh, live in a world that revolves around big cycles, right? Big cycles of grant funding, big cycles of uh, services needing uh, to be provided, right? It's not it's not a transactional thing. It's more of a relational development type thing, right? Uh, and for us to ensure that the services that we're providing, longevity is key, right? Because knowledge uh, uh, is imperative yeah. um, you know the nuance that, that you have to deal in the in the world of uh, you know grant funding uh, is is you know it's a tremendous hurdle sometimes uh, and it changes right uh, the landscape changes be- between administrations or leaders of you know uh, HUD or whatever it might be uh, so you think about that side of it uh, but the other side of it is is we're not providing a good service to people experiencing homelessness if they have a case manager for three months and then they're gone. Absolutely. And then they have another case manager that's there for six months and they're gone, right? Uh, and, you know, uniformity in that sense helps build relationships. It helps build trust. Uh, and it helps, you know, build success. And, right. and, and, and I can tell you, um, trust in relationships are the most difficult thing to build when people are experiencing homelessness because they don't have much well, trust, through the, you know, yeah. <laughs> and they got a lot of walls built up mm-hmm. where, where uh, relationships are, are hard to, to uh, break through. Yeah. Well, we are approximately one hour into this podcast. It goes quickly. Yes, it does. It goes really it, time flies when you're having fun, right? right. So um, as we wrap up here, we have this uh, – deck of cards over here. It's called Pod Decks. This is the interview uh, stack that we have. We have started taking one question, each one, and we don't put the cards back in, so we don't get the same question asked twice. So this is your question. All right. And this is for me. For you. All right. What's the favorite thing you've bought this year? All right. Um... Well, I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with this. This is 
it's not a tangible thing, but what I did buy was a fishing trip for my son and I and uh, my mother-in-law's partner. Uh, he is uh, my mother-in-law's partner. He's a, a small town Kentucky boy who <laughs> hardly gets out of, out of Kentucky, uh, loves to fish. Um, my son has, he loves to fish. We fish at a, a Lake Rudolph when we camp up there. We fish yeah. down at uh, Rough River Lake where uh, we, we go to quite a bit. And um, so I, we, I purchased a, a bay fishing trip for us. And I was just a half day inshore excursion. And it was a, an amazing time. Yeah, we, we caught a lot of fish. Um, we, my son, I, I don't think I've seen him you know, beam and smile as much as he did. He caught the biggest fish, which was well worth the, the money spent on it. Um, uh, and, and, you know, my, my mother-in-law's partner, Eddie, he, uh, I think he had the best time of his life too. So it was great. Yeah. That's one thing during COVID that we actually were blessed to have all the fishing rods because I've on growing, growing up, fishing was like the thing we did yeah. and it, it carried over and I never, never got rid of them. I was lucky enough to have, you know, extra string and redid everything. And, uh, the family during that, you know, we went out to bluegrass a lot and, uh, yeah, had a deep appreciation of fishing once again. So <laughs> I just keep telling, you know, McKenna, if you don't want to play softball, you don't want to do the volleyball thing, whatever. So we'll start camping, fishing, doing all that stuff again. So, you know, no, yeah. don't, don't feel pressured that you have to go down <laughs> this youth sports, uh, you know, yeah. I, I understand hole. that sentiment for sure. My, my son, uh, uh, he played basketball over the winter, and we we were all the time going somewhere on the weekend because we got family in Kentucky, and uh, and we do a lot of trips together with him. But he was playing sports, so we were, we were all thrown off because he hadn't really done it. And yeah, you know, eighteen months, twenty months since you know through the pandemic and whatnot. But well, yeah, it was good. It's good. It was good time to have a little reset button and know there's other things out there. I mean, we had. We had 22, I think it was 22 weekends at one point that we were in hotels due to travel, basketball and baseball Yeah, out of the year. So that was. Well, I can tell you, uh, you know, if somebody gets really into fishing, though, it's probably a lot more expensive. Than, <laughs> yeah, I do hear some of the competitive. Yeah. yeah. I got a friend of mine who's, he does the real deal fishing every weekend he's got the boats he's got the you know any you know you have to pay money to get in those tournaments and most of the time he walks away with nothing <laughs> gets the experience though that's right you know what we didn't so even ask the one question what was that? oh yeah what does the, the word experience mean to you oh experience oh yeah um it means a lot right i mean right offhand it's that wisdom but you know i think it's that for me most important importantly, because my life has been so varied as far as ex experience. Uh, you know, I think it's that, that learned, um, you know, situational stuff that, that really, uh, for, for me, had, comes to mind because that's really how much I've been shaped through my life is just the many places I've been, the many people I've met, um, many places I've lived. Uh, that's, that's what it is for me. Last question. What product, brand, person has the most most authentic experience today? Well, I'll, I'll get this 
really relative. I, it was Will Smith until <laughs> <laughs> until last night. Uh, you know, I, I've always admired Will Smith for his capacity to do anything and everything and do it so well. You know, they that saying is a uh, uh, what is it? Um, uh, person of multiple skills yeah. master of many or some of many master of none but the other side of that is is uh, a lot of people only says says that part it's yeah, uh, the other part the other part is is best to be uh, uh, you know adept at many things, many things and I'm really a master of one right? I've been a yeah. master of one and not only is he really adept but he's just really good at everything and um, uh, I was you know really disappointed at, at kind of what happened. I'm still like in shock like most people are uh, and I still think it's a ruse, but... Well, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Yeah, that's already started to come out. This yeah. is actors being actors. Nobody's watching this whatever yeah. you want to term it, but no one's watching it anymore. What are we going to do to make yeah. people care about this Art imitates life, you know. Maybe yeah. he was still stuck in the uh, the character too. Yeah. I think you said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I, I, I mean, I think from that standpoint, um, uh, you know, I think he was doing doing pretty well. Might get a little tarnish on it, but some yeah. people might be like, he was sticking up for his lady. Yeah. So, how do people? How do the listeners connect with you? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, two ways. Obviously, I wear two hats. Uh, you know, Aurora first. Uh, you know, if if you guys know of anybody who's experiencing homelessness or might be facing eviction, you know, make sure that they go to our website. Uh, contact us. It's AuroraEvansville.org. Uh, you can also call up to the office eight one two four two eight three two four six. Our front office will answer the phone, get you pointing in the right direction. Um, and then if there's anything. You know, city-wise that you need, you can go to the Evansville City Government website for City Council. I've got my email and my cell phone on there as well, too. Uh, always happy to have conversations with residents and, and talk about things that can progress our city forward. Awesome. Well, thank you for spending an hour in the Extension Studio with us on At 530 on Main. No, thank you for having me. Mike, any uh, wrap-up thoughts? No, it's, this one? it was good. I'll say... Uh, yeah, my favorite thing since we didn't answer that was this. Yeah, yeah. I was about to fly right by. Yeah, my son's into Star Wars now, so we got matching Jedi cloaks. So oh yeah, there we go. Nice. Now can pretend Jedi, you know, with the lightsabers and everything. Jedi's and or G or Star Wars and GI Joes were very <laughs> expensive in England when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. I did not wow. get any on the trips when we were over there because that exchange rate. <laughs> Yeah, mine has one. Well, mine, I have some, and then there's a little store over by Good Shepherd now mm-hmm. that has all this memorabilia stuff. And I, my mother kept every all my toys, and I go in there, and I'm like, I have that character. If it was only in the package, it'd be worth yeah. like five hundred dollars. Right, right. <laughs> but it's all scratched up, and yeah, mud caked in. Dog some spots. chew up an arm. <laughs> pieces put, you know, yeah. other pieces, you know, transformer like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I haven't bought anything that uh, this year that really stands out. I've been kind of conservative, kind of waiting around to see what's going on. New hand. Yeah, I've new hand, <laughs> new call. Yeah, <laughs> all kinds of wonderful stories there. It's been a a heck of a last nine month experience. Um, 
But anyway, that's for another episode. We'll go through that whole uh, whole fun time. Uh, we enjoy these episodes of At 530 on Main. Uh, if you have anyone out there who would like to be a participant, if you'd like to uh, have them uh, be recommended to be on the At 530 on Main podcast, uh, theextendgroup.com, vpsarc.com. Both of those websites have a real big logo at the bottom of it that say At 530 on Main. Click that. You'll see all the episodes there where you can pick it up. You know, it's on... Apple, Google, Spotify, it's all uh, Pandora. I think it's all over the place now. The team here does a really good job of making sure that we stay relevant and on as many streaming services as possible. Thank you to Extend Group for taking care of that. Uh, if you have anyone that you would like to be on the show, recommend them there. And as always, like, share, and uh, tell all your friends about it. We do uh, enjoy this time, this one hour together, learning about our community. We're about the word experience. I think we have a very unique experience here in Evansville, Indiana, an awesome community that leans into all things that, uh, you know, live, work, and play. So uh, thank you to all of our listeners. Zach, thank you. Mike, at 530 on Main. Till next time. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of At 530 on Main, hosted by Sean Collins and Mike Davis. Please leave us a review and share your thoughts on today's episode. Let us know how you've been inspired or what you would like to hear on future episodes. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, help us spread the word. Share us on your social channels. Message a friend. Rate the podcast. Without you, this experience would not be possible.